Welcome to another episode of Think of the Children, an audio newsletter about the intersection of parenting and education. I'm Emily Popek. This week, I'm delighted to bring you my conversation with Deborah Farmer-Chris, a parent educator, education journalist, children's book author, and founder of Parenthood 365. You can find links from today's episode and more from my conversation with Deborah at thinkofthechildren.substack.com. So I'm going to invite you, Deborah, to introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about your work. Great. So I'm Deborah Farmer-Chris, and uh, my background is education. I've taught nearly every grade, was an assistant principal for a while, went back and got my master's in counseling psychology. And uh, so in the midst of all that, I also love writing um, and I've done that for years. And so I started in 2014 being, uh, being an education journalist and correspondent for NPR's Mindshift. One of my very first pieces, you know, you can never predict this, but completely went viral about uh, preschoolers and their emotions. And PBS Kids was just starting their parenting blog. And so they invited me to be one of their first columnists. And I have been a columnist there and working with all kinds of different projects for PBS Kids since 2015. I also work in-house doing parent education um, in schools, uh, one in particular, but uh, giving talks. And so I finally decided during pandemic to go full on with my freelance work. I've been always kind of in schools and doing freelance. And so I founded Parenthood 365, which is a website, it's Facebook, Instagram, but basically trying to find, uh, uh, to centralize resources for parents. And I really view my job so much as being a translator of research because I, I read everything that comes out. It's part of my job, all the parenting books, all the new studies. And most people don't have time to do that because you're parents and like, who has time for that? And so I try to say, okay, what's the nugget in this book that I think could practically help parents of preschoolers? Or what's the nugget in this book that could practically help parents of of high schoolers? I have four books coming out this year that are aimed at preschoolers. In February 22nd, I Love You All the Time and You Have Feelings All the Time, those two books. And then in July, You Wonder All the Time and November, You're Growing All the Time. What I love about putting together this series is that it's a little bit like Daniel Tiger. Um, I firmly believe that Daniel Tiger is a it's a show for kids, but it's really a show for parents. Um, it's a parenting show. Like it's, we're all singing the potty song to our kids to teach them how to use the potty. And we're telling them to take a breath, singing that we're using these strategy songs. There's even a Daniel Tiger parenting app. And so at the end of these books, there's a letter to caregivers. My thought is because so many people don't have time to read the books, they have time to read aloud to their kids because that's just something that's so good. And so I thought if I could write a series that used the best of some of my research and gems and aim it toward parents of young kids who may be having their first kid and are in the throes of those struggles, that that seemed to be like a a good way to get at my passion, which is helping families thrive. That's great. I love that concept so much about how you can come at those things that parents need to know through the vehicle of a picture book for for younger kids. Um, That's terrific. I love that because yeah, we're all reading stuff to our kids and I've certainly had the opposite experience where you grab a picture book from the library and you start to read it and you're like, Okay, hold on a minute. I actually don't agree with what's on the page here. I, um, you know, having those books that we can read to young kids that really do reflect, like you said, the the best, you know, available information we have 
about what to do as a parent and how to talk and communicate about these things. Um, That's wonderful. That's so exciting. I love that. I would love to hear from you. I know this is such a huge topic, but hearing you say, you know, how much reading and research you do and kind of keeping up with what's the latest thinking on a lot of things, like what is top of mind for you right now? You know, one of the things at the top of my mind, because I'm giving a presentation on it next week, was my most recent piece for the Washington Post, which was a piece on the emotion of awe. Because I feel like I've read a tremendous amount in the last years about stress and resilience, because honestly, it's been a really, 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 really difficult time for parents. But I'm, I'm almost a little burnt out about hearing about self-care. Um, And I think a lot of us are because we don't self-care our way through a pandemic. It's helpful. You've got to take care of yourself. But, you know, this is not a normal playbook. So I did a deep dive last fall into the research on awe. And awe is that feeling we have when we come across something that is wonderful, unexpected, and challenges our frame of reference. So when you see something in nature that's extraordinary and you have that kind of awe-inspiring, you stop in your tracks, you look. Um, the the example I give one in the story is remembering being a nine-year-old and my father waking me up at night at two o'clock in the morning and taking us outside to watch the meteor shower. And just remember feeling how small I felt in conjunction with the stars, you know, going across the sky on this beautiful desert, you know, uh, August night. And that, that feeling, almost that goosebumps feeling, it turns out that there's a lot of really good research on how that um, increases curiosity, on how it makes us more altruistic. I really think that as parents, we can't just keep gritting our way through this. You know, and, and grit is exhausting, right? Being on a high level of alert, it drains our prefrontal cortex to be on a high level of alert all the time. And so this was why I felt this research was so refreshing. And it seems so practical of if you take awe walks, which are to go out and purposely go away from being internal and looking to, looking for something beautiful outside, there's clinical benefits to that. And so I find myself more than almost any piece of research I've read in the last two years, this has made the most practical difference in my family life in the last two months because I'm pulling the kids out to see the sunset. (laughs) I'm pulling them out to see the full moon. Um, If I have a piece of music that really moves me, I cue it up for pickup time. It's this looking for these moments where I'm just feeling that sense of of wonder that almost pulls me out of the moment uh, to say there's there's things here I don't understand and there's beauty to look for. And I, I just think that moving forward, we need to have good self-care. We need to be able to manage stress and be resilient. But I think we also need more awe and wonder in our lives. That's great. Yeah. And I, I read that piece. It made me reflect on how there's an extent to which sometimes we reach for awe, maybe without consciously naming it as such. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about how in the early stages of the pandemic, uh, I started going for walks with my daughter at lunchtime. Mm. And we would go down to the corner of our road and try to find a frog in the ditch. And that was like our daily reach for awe. Like, and I couldn't put into words why it felt important to go find frog every day. Mm -hmm. But like you have just named it for me that we were taking an awe walk and like, let's just go see something (laughs) wonderful. Let's go watch a frog jump into the ditch. 
you know, it was mm-hmm. March. Like there was not a lot happening outside in the Northeast, but we had frogs in the ditch mm-hmm. and we went to see them every day uh, because that felt like something we could do. And I love you know, that you mentioned that because I, you know, in March, so I'm also in the Northeast um, shortly after everything shut down. Um, I remember actually we broke it to my kids. We were supposed to go to the first Disneyland trip on March 17th. And we broke it to the kids and, you know, this is right before everything shut down. We made the decision like three days in advance of that, but the peeper frogs came out that night and the peeper frogs around here are just the herald of spring and they're really loud. And it's amazing that they all like wake up at the same morning. It's at moment. It's like, it's this mysterious, like hauntingly beautiful sound in our woods. And I remember standing in the driveway, just listening to that sound and thinking those frogs have no idea what's happening in the human world. And that's so beautiful. (laughs) They still came out and are still singing for us. Yeah. And it is like you were saying, it's like a break. It's like a way to get out of our heads where Mm -hmm. we can think about, like you just said, it's like the frogs are not experiencing a global pandemic and shut down. Like they're just out there being frogs. And like for a minute, like we can be with them instead of in our like stressful little world. Um, yeah, I love that so much. And also, as you noted, how sort of practical and actionable it is. You know, I think you were alluding to the, the way in which some of the conversations around self-care, I feel a little a little hollow mm-hmm. or a little bit, um, but it's like, oh, take a bubble bath. You know, it's like, come on. It's patronizing at times. <laughs> and, yeah, right? it can like, come across as patronizing. It can come across as privileged, but I love the idea, the examples that you just gave. I think most people have access to some, some way to tap into that feeling of awe, a piece of music. Got to say too, when I interviewed uh, Dr. Dr. Keltner and I asked him what was something surprising in your research, and he said the most common source of awe that people self-report is actually observing the goodness of other people. We find great satisfaction in those moments where we see something inspiring, a person helping somebody else. And that seems to be a very actionable thing with our children too, is pointing out those moments in a day when somebody helped me, right? If I was at a grocery store and somebody was really kind at the checkout and just naming it so that they're hearing it. And I just feel like that's something as parents, you know, I think they're such good anthropologists of our stress and our concerns and the news that's on. And I I think that like, we have to do some counter messaging about how beautiful the, the world is, how beautiful people can be, even though there's all kinds of other stuff, tough stuff too. Otherwise, you know, where's that kind of practical optimism, like that practical hope that, you know, there's goodness here and I can be part of that movement. Can you tell me a little bit more about your family you and your husband have two children? Is that right? I have a 10 year old and an eight year old. Okay. And a very, very cute dog. When you are working, where are your kids? Obviously at school for part of that. But school. Yeah. So, but- and they, yeah, so they're at school and um, that's, and I've, I've been able to work mostly from home these last two years. You know, I've been very lucky in that way. Um, and my husband works from home too. So when they are home, we've been able to tag team. It's worked, but it's always, it's better when they're in school. <laughs> right. Yeah. The thing I always like to note is that the school day is not as long as the typical work day. Yeah. Right. So that usually means there's some things happening around the edges. So you mentioned kind of tag teaming with your husband. For me, like my actually my my best writing time. So I have one child who really likes me to sit on their bed as they fall asleep. And we've tried many things through the years. And honestly, it's just easiest to do that. 
And what's ended up being beautiful this last year is I just take my laptop in there and I often stay long after this child is asleep and write. And it's the house is quiet. I have my inspiration sitting next to me because, you know, I, I write for my kids in so many ways. And um, so from about nine to 1030 is usually some of my very best writing time. And once I discovered not to fight against that, but just to, this was our workaround for now. It's really, you know, versus like you have to get to sleep so I can get to work. It's, it's made life much easier. I feel like sometimes we feel like there's certain rules, like, okay, you, you have to do this or this or this. And sometimes you just got to like make your own family rules that are going to, to work for your family. So for me, it's riding on the edge of my kid's bed at night. Yeah. I love that. Cause I do feel like there is a lot of either self-imposed or external pressure around things like what sleep should look like in your sleep house. habits. Exactly. Right. And like feeding too. But like, I feel like sleep is such a big one because it starts right at the beginning when you bring mm-hmm. the baby home and like, it just keeps going. Um, so I love what you said about it's kind of like, yeah, there might be rules, but maybe you're, you've made, you've decided on the rules for your family and it doesn't have to look yeah. like anyone else's arrangement as long as it's working. I, I just laugh because I knew like I have one child as an introvert and one who's an extrovert. And I knew this when they were four months old. <laughs> and this is partly is the research I'd done myself because temperamentally, one is much more responsive to sound and stimulus than the other. And they find that like four month old babies who are more reactive to novelty or to loud noises tend to self-identify as introverts later. And so, you know, I had a four month old kid who could craved movement, craved bouncing, craved loud noises. And I had one that you would shut a kitchen cabinet and like all the way across the house, she would wake up. It's been that way since the beginning. And you've got sometimes you just got to work with the temperament you have. I think sometimes these rules almost impose a sense of you know, unwitting morality upon the children. Like, oh, if I'm unable to fall asleep in a certain amount of time, something's wrong with me. And that's, that's just like, who needs that extra shame? And on the parents too, because we take it on then too. Like, oh, why can't I get my baby down to sleep? It's such a fantasy, but it's like such a alluring fantasy. I would love to hear something that is challenging about parenting for you, like during this season of life or something that happens in your household that like really pushes your buttons as a parent. Oh, sure. And honestly, it's it's very much my issue, which is that sometimes I like sometimes the day to run a certain way. And it's, so there, it's, it's about the sense of like control versus autonomy. Like I want them to know in their own heads, of course, I have to practice piano and then do this and do this. And I want them to be autonomous about it. And that means letting go some more. But then I also want it to get done. And it's, it's, for me, it's this constant tug of war of like, raising them to the, have the autonomy to do the things that need to get done and build that responsibility. And me saying either I'm going to micromanage you, which I don't want to be that parent, but I sometimes am that parent, or um, I'm going to swoop in and do it myself because I can't stand the messy dishes. And so I'm just going to swoop in because it's easier to do it, which I also know also then just kind of lets them know, oh, well, well, mom will do it if I wait long enough, right? As we move them toward adulthood, at what point do you step back? And when do you step back? And then when do you step back in to, to bring the safety net? And um, every season I feel like other lives brings that challenge in a different way. I really relate to that struggle between like, I want this thing to actually happen and get done versus I want to make space for my child to take that step on their own. I, I'd love to interrogate because this is something I hear a lot and something I've heard come out of my own mouth. But I'd love to interrogate with you the idea 
that it is easier if you do it yourself. Like, can you say more about what that means for you? Mm-hmm. Like what, what's the other side of that coin? What would be hard for you about not doing it yourself? I think that sometimes when you're tired at the end of the day, it's weighing out what is worth a potential conflict or not. You prioritize the relationship over the task. When do I, you know, push knowing that my son may have a full on meltdown if I tell him to go practice the piano because he's had a long day and he's overtired and he stayed up too late reading in bed the night before. Judging that piece, that line of letting them monitor themselves, wanting them to be responsible, wanting them to build good habits, responsibility, but also being emotionally cognizant that every day doesn't necessarily can't be lockstep. I completely relate to everything you described where you're sort of weighing it in the moment of like, do I want to push on this right now? Mm -hmm. Like, is this like, is this a boundary I need to hold in this moment with my child? Like you said, someone's tired. Someone had a rough day. Um, Yeah. They're in the middle of an activity. That's really bringing them a lot of joy that you would encourage them to my daughter draws a lot. And like, if she's in the middle of the drawing and it's just like bubbling over with excitement about it. Yeah. Like it doesn't feel like the time to be like, I need you to go put your socks in the hamper that you left on the hallway landing. So it's, it's interesting that I feel like when we interrogate that, it's not that it's easier to do the dishes ourselves. It's that it doesn't always feel appropriate to hold that boundary in that moment. It's that the cost of asking them to do it might be too high. Mm -hmm. I also think for me, sometimes it's like a little less noble and a little more of just acknowledging that I don't want to deal with my child's upset, that I don't Mm -hmm. want to experience my child's big feelings. Um, Or knowing that like, I'm not in the space to be as patient with their big feelings. I mean, I I weigh that out sometimes too. That's a much kinder way of, of, (laughs) because I'm always just like, I just can't deal with it right now. Like I just right, know. But I mean, you know, if you want to be an emotionally responsive parent, there are times I just know it's going to trigger me. And I, you know, that's, that's not how I want to be. It's going to happen sometimes, but there are times when I can absolutely like be the calm in the storm. And there are times when it's going to be really hard to be the calm in the storm. And so that, that plays into it too. Right. So it's about our own capacity in that moment as well. What has helped me is being like, trying to tell myself a true story about what's happening in that moment. Mm. And the story doesn't have to be that like, I'm a terrible parent because I cleaned out her lunchbox again today, instead of asking her to do it. Like, no, like I can tell a different story about what just happened. And maybe the truer story is that like, there are a lot of things going on this evening. And I just chose to take care of this myself Mm because that's what I have prioritized right now. And I love that. Yeah. And I think also we can actually share some of those stories with our kids. In the sense that, yeah. I mean, like, like last, I'll take last night, right? Like I, I bring up my daughter's clothes from our, um, and I dump them on the floor in her room because she's supposed to put them away and walk back. It's bedtime. And she's like deep into reading this book. She's super excited about this new book. Nothing has been touched. And I start to put stuff away and she looks at me and I can tell she's like, has that kind of guilty look on her face? Cause she's my guilty child, right? Like temperamentally. And I said, look, this is your job, but I love that you're so into that book and I have a bit of time right now. So I'm going to do this for you right now. And then it became rather than a moment of guilt, it came out of gratitude, right? She's like, thank you, mom. And you can see that like the next time I ask her, like 
I'm going to guess that balance is in her mind a little bit, right? So it's, I'm actually acknowledging that you're in the middle of something. I'm going to help you out here, but I'm not going to make you feel guilty about it. But But I think what you've just said brings a really important point into it, which is like the spirit in which we're doing some of like, if you can put away those clothes without resentment, yeah, without like, why didn't she like, that would have been terrible. Right. And like, I've certainly done that. Like, like ostentatiously cleaning out the lunchbox, like while glaring at my child. Everybody behold my martyrdom. (laughs) For sure. Right. But if I can find a way to do that, like open-heartedly and like, yes, like I'm choosing to do this for you in a non-resentful way. And, and as you said, communicate that to my child sincerely, then surely there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then I'm in there while she's reading and like, you can tell I was, you know, it actually became kind of a nice moment. Right. Where. Right. But it could have been like in a different moment. And I'm, I'm talking about myself here. Like that's Mm -hmm. something that I get to choose whether what I'm bringing to the situation or not. So, yeah, I love that. I'm like, like resentment is like a big thing that I'm, I work on like in my parenting and in my household, like I don't have to do things resentfully. Like I can, you know, um, but it's, it's very easy for me to slip into that. Like you said, like the martyrdom, like, oh, I'll just, don't worry about me. I'll just, right. Right. Do this. Think, I, I think I've come from generations of women who played that role. And so oh, it's yeah. part of like some actively changing scripts. That's a great segue into my next question, because I also wanted to ask you um, to name something that you have chosen to do differently as you parent your children compared to the household you grew up in. So I'm the youngest of five uh, and I had some uh, just lovely parents Emotional literacy was not something that was a strong suit in our family, um, and neither was it in their families of origin. So for me, I don't think we ever really talked about emotions, but I definitely got the sense that some emotions were better than others, and that anger was one that, while there might be a lot of it in the household, was a bad emotion. And so, so much of my work as a parent and as a teacher and as a parent educator is really starting with, there's no such thing as a bad emotion, that all emotions give us data. They are, all of our emotions are part of our system that is designed to protect us and to give us information so we can make choices. But when you start by feeling bad about the fact that you feel angry or feel sad or feel lonely, that there's something wrong with you if you have the feeling, then you get really stuck. And it's very easy to have a lot of shame. And so, you know, the second book I have coming out in February, You Have Feelings All the Time, is uh, the, the impetus of that book was a moment I had with my daughter when she was two and she had this tremendous meltdown and she was screaming and flailing because she was two. And I picked her up and I was rocking her and I said, you know, I love you when you're mad. And she absolutely still down because I think she was shocked to hear me say that. And so I'm just ad-libbing. And so I was like, yeah, and I love you when you're sad. I love you when you're happy. I love you all the time. And this, I think, became really a a kind of a a key moment for me as a parent 
because I think I didn't always feel that, not because it was ever said, but because I just kind of intuitive that I'm less lovable unless I'm happy, unless I'm positive, I'm not as lovable a person. And so that became the mantra for my kids at night is I love you all the time, you know? And so of course my, my son being who he is used to test and be like, so what if I went into your closet and cut all of your clothes with a, with a, you know, with scissors and I'd say, well, I'd be really disappointed and would have a big conversation about it, but I still love you, right? I, I love you all the time. It's so interesting too, because the other piece of that is like, I might be mad at you and I would still love you, right? Yes. As I'll have emotions love- too. Like I, that could happen and I could have a big feeling, right? but that doesn't change my constancy of my love. And I think that, so that's the message of the first book. And the message of the second one is just actually naming vocabulary. You know, you have feelings all the time. It goes through mixed feelings. Like, you know, you can be both be happy that your mom came home and sad. That means your grandma's leaving. You can be both happy for a friend that, um, that they won and sad that you lost, that you have these feelings all the time. And that is absolutely normal. And I think that is seems so simple, but when I talk about this with parents and I'll say like, how many of you growing up were there certain emotions that were just forbidden or, you know, you just sensed it and every hand goes up. Like we didn't all grow up in emotionally healthy households. And I don't blame our parents. This is, this is generational, right? And our, our job is to do just a little bit better than, than our parents before us. And then I hope my kids do a little bit better than I did. When our kids get angry, we, we match it, right? We, we push them away. We meet it with anger. We don't know how to handle it. But if we can like ride that out with them underneath that anger is often confusion or worry or sadness or anxiety. And there's just this, there's a thing there and they don't know how to say it. So what comes out is anger and then we punish it, right? Like, how dare you say that to me, go to your room. When what really may be going on is that something happened at school that scared them um, or that a friend said something that hurt their feelings and it just erupts when they come home. And when we can help them sit with that and get what's underneath it like that's the beginning of emotional literacy right there um but the minute we punish it we just they just get that sense of you know my that feeling's not okay i can't show that feeling um or if i do i just got to be expect that my mom and dad will just you know they're not there to help me through it and that's that's something i've really really consciously tried to work on in my parenting and help other parents with i'm very interested in how we react as parents to our kids big feelings because it's when you really think about some of it, like the scenario you just described, like it's a little bonkers. We punish kids for being mad at us all the time. And it's, Mm -hmm. and there's no, like, there's no logic to that. I've come to understand how much of, but a lot of the sort of expected responses to child behavior that were normalized in the time when I was growing up, um, you know, don't talk to me that way, go to your room, you're grounded for sort of outbursts of, emotion or even behavior. Um, I, I can see now how many of those strategies were designed to shield the adults from having to experience the emotions of the children around them. Right. Absolutely. And I was like, Oh, that's awful. <laughs> yeah. Come back out when you have it together. Right. Yes. Like I don't want to deal don't with your feelings. Don't come see me until you, until you fold it together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I don't want in any way to experience the emotions that you're having right now. Like, please take those emotions away from me. Please take them away from the rest of the family. Like they're really not welcome here. Like um, it's really striking to me how much that 
is the foundation of a lot of the way that that children are reacted to. And I, I see ways in which that carries over in the school environment too. And I wonder if you do as well. Um, oh yeah. You know, I think about things like students being suspended, sent to the office. And I know that some of that is to keep other students safe around them. But I also think, you know, you can get sent to the office for mouthing off at a teacher. And uh, yeah, and, and unfortunately, when you look at suspensions, right, there's disproportionately black males, you know, and, uh, and, and that's, um, I wrote a piece of the Boston Globe magazine about, you know, kind of anger and kind of getting to the roots of things. And as um, one middle schooler told me, I just, I wish my parents would understand that anytime I'm angry at them, it's because I'm stressed about something else. Um, and so a good friend of mine who works in the Boston Public Schools doing restorative justice um, is, is using that now as reading for the teachers because she's saying, you know, if you have, how much of it is that, you know, we are bringing our own anxiety when we have, you know, a middle school boy who may be even bigger than us, right? Um, or high schooler and, or we bring our, you know, our own implicit racism to a situation. And if we are, if we are able to sit with them, like what's underneath that anger that may be super, super valid and that needs to be heard. Uh, there's a lot of layers here about why children starting at a young age need people to sit with them in, in their anger and get a sense of what's happening underneath. You know, it's not a comfortable feeling. And if you, you know, sit with a kid and say, that probably didn't feel good when you lost it with your sister. Do you want some help? And, you know, so that doesn't happen again. They tend to say yes. Like they know it doesn't feel good. You know, punishing the feeling just makes them feel worse. <laughs> um, being that offer of help of, you know, I, I know that, you know, that we had kind of a tough evening. Like let's, let's now, once it calms down, let's talk it through a little bit. And then you're an ally um, in the situation. Right. And then there's actually some chance that the, that child will eventually learn a different way of navigating whatever they were feeling, whether yeah, it was. Cause then you can circle back and say, so like if we had the rewind button here and we could go back, you know, what would be a couple of other options here? Right. Cause that's where learning can actually happen right. as opposed to go to your room where like, what, you know, what's most likely to happen. You send that child to their room. I feel like that's like, that's where shame is going to flourish when yeah. you're alone and there's no one there to sort of help you contextualize what just happened through an adult's mind, not the mind of a child. I like what Mark Brackett says. He's the director of emotional intelligence at, at Yale and um, runs the child study center there. And his, he has a great book called permission to feel. And he says, you know, if, if you ever send a kid away, maybe for your own mental health, like you got to go to the bathroom and take deep breaths, right? Our job as a parent is to circle back. And he says, you know, often as adults, if we're feeling upset, like we just want space, maybe even for an hour. Um, but most children acting out is an invitation to approach. That acting out is an invitation that they need help. And so when we send them away, they're just stuck in the confusion by themselves. And so even if you do have to say, I'm gonna, you're going to be here, I'm going to go for a minute over here, the job is to circle back around um, and, and to come back to it. Not to be like, great, you pulled yourself together, we pretend it didn't happen, and we'll eat dinner now. <laughs>
I would love to hear if you chose your child's school or if they go to their local neighborhood school. They both went to the local neighborhood school, but I actually moved them both to a Montes- uh, a small local Montessori school um, last year. I'm a huge public school supporter and, um, you know, wasn't it was opting out for, for some family reasons, but, you know, I, I was worried that could be misconstrued. So. And what I love at Montessori that I, I wish was available in more schools is just that sense that of, of following the child and allowing children to be children and allowing play. There's that kind of understood flexibility from the Maria Montessori model that you're that, you know, the education happens from from following the child and watching their interests. And so I, I feel like in a time when so much has been kind of interrupted in our children's childhood, it's been a real boon to have such kind of play at school that is also learning because play is the work of childhood as uh, Fred Rogers likes to say. I would love to hear, and I know this is a loaded question, but that's why I'm asking it. I would love to hear what you think it means for a school to be a good school. For me, it's a school that is able to be responsive, like it prioritizes relationships. And I, so if you were to go in and I say this is someone who's been an administrator too, um, you want to look at the relationships that teachers have with each other, that teachers have with the specialist teachers, with the administration. And is it a place that is prioritizing, um, I mean, you know, zero tolerance? It never works. It, it always punishes a certain group of kids. Is it a place that is, has very actively looking at wellness and mental health um, that allows flexibility for teachers to be able to meet the needs of the kids? Are they looking at the curriculum in a really thoughtful way? And so part of that's going to be also, you know, with public schools is, is a school board one that is, is open and inclusive. Do the teachers feel like they're respected? Because I think if they don't, then that trickles down that kind of resentment into the classroom. Um, And I think you see a high degree of teacher burnout for a lot of reasons right now. And part of it is just, the attitude that the public or school boards or, or you know, even administration can take, although I think administrators have been absolute heroes um, through, through this pandemic, there has to be a real emphasis on relationship from superintendent all the way down because that ends up benefiting the child. Um, and if there's always then the sense too of like, how does this benefit the child? Like keeping the child at the center of everything. How does this curriculum benefit the child and their relationships? How are we meeting the needs of children who have this concern or that concern? You know, that's a tall order, but those are the schools you can walk in and you can feel kind of the joy in the hallway because, you know, the teachers know each other's names, the teachers know the kids' names, there's a sense of community. And, you know, one of the um, factors that Jessica Leahy in her book, The Addiction Inoculation, that she notes that one of the most protective factors for adolescents is feeling connected to the school. That connection has to happen at at kind of the the, the faculty level too, and then, you know, strategically looking down. So that's what I look for when I walk into a school is those markers of connectedness. Yeah, if you think the teacher hates you, you're not gonna learn that much in the class unless you're super motivated. I want to thank Deborah for a great conversation. You can find her at parenthood365.com and look for Deborah's children's books coming out later this year. You can find more from me at thinkofthechildren.substack.com. And as always, thanks for listening.